0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: You know what your problem is? Always my favorite part of the day is synthetic telling me what my problem is. There's that word again. Your problem is you don't know yourself. You don't trust anyone. Is that my problem? And man, I don't blame you. After all you've been through, if I were like you, I wouldn't know myself either. Okay, firstly, stop saying
2: man. Secondly, you're not like
1: me. And I'm not like them. MX units are logic-based and rule-oriented. They have no true free will, and they are designed to feel nothing. Now, I can't say that I was born, I can't say I grew in a womb or had a childhood. But I was made to feel. And I do. As much as you. I read what you wrote. That if an MX hadn't left you behind to save some others, your partner might have made it out of that ambush alive. And that part may be true. But I read the whole report. By the time the ambush had begun, it was already too late, and it was you who led them in. So you can blame an MX, or you can blame yourself. Okay, you know, I am nothing You're obviously like malfunctioning right now. Why don't you Not just take a second and reboot Anyone yourself? Anyone is malfunctioning, you know what, I'm it is you, Kennex! Don't KenX. even stop arguing with pieces of
3: silicon and carbon fiber. Good morning, London. It's Thursday, December 12th, 2013. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Bond. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be alright. And so begins a great friendship as we heard on that opening clip of ours today. It's Almost Human, and Almost Human is the name of a new TV show that both Robert and I started watching when it debuted just last month, and that we'll be talking about when we kick off the second half of the show later today. Also, we'll be wrapping up on our final quarter with some great poly talk. Political definitions that will inform, educate, outrage, and entertain. <laughs> also, Rob Ford, Ryan's Law, the post office. Boy, that's a quick lot we got on our plate today, Robert. Are we going to do it? There's so much going I on. So little time. 519-661-3600 is the number to call if you want to reach us and join in on the conversation. Or, as always, write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. But first, feedback. Boy, we got one angry listener last week, didn't we? Yes, we did. <laughs> A fellow named Max wrote on our blog after listening to well, I guess not the whole show, but <laughs> part of it. And he writes on December 6th, I normally enjoy your show. I listened to the first ten minutes of this one and couldn't listen to more. It made me sick to my stomach. What nonsense. Maybe you and your self-absorbed Ayn Rand objectivists will come up with a plan to take over the responsibilities of feeding, clothing, housing, protecting, treating, and educating the hundreds of millions that the church helps every day and has for decades and centuries. Let me guess. The church should sell off all her assets and redistribute the wealth? Or maybe NGOs backed by monstrous bloated bureaucracies? Or maybe a new tax to feed the poor administered by appointed officials? Pope Francis has used his position to bring attention to an enormously complex problem that cannot be solved by just saying, get a job. 90% of the world lives in poverty and many in horrible poverty. Ayn Rand's childish, shallow solutions are like an aspirin for terminal cancer. I guess this is where blind sycophancy inevitably leads. It should not in any way be a surprise Rand herself ended up a lonely welfare recipient in her last years. I am a capitalist, and unlike many who espouse the idea, I have lived that life. It's very hard, at times terribly painful, and many difficult sacrifices must be made. And that's an understatement. I seriously doubt you understand what it means unless you've been there. Ayn Rand and her followers are almost always just groupies and never players. Capitalism only works in Western society, a society built on Christianity. Your lack of understanding and respect of how we got to where we are now is telling. Your mindless, contemptible, ill-founded criticisms of the Pope are proof you chug the Rand Kool-Aid. I will pray for you. Well, Robert, thanks for that, Max. (laughs) Wow. wow, Max, lighten up. <laughs> Say something. <laughs> it's on your radio show. You know, what's this, a drive-by <laughs> prayer? You know? All this anger and fury, and yet you've made not one point about what it was that you found so un- offensive. And it would be you know, easy just to dismiss these insults and and all these irrelevancies, but your comments offer a rare glimpse in the kind of thinking that prevails in so much of the world today, and I think that is the cause of a lot of the suffering and poverty that's unnecessary that, that you're talking about. Now, if it's Roberts and my responsibility with coming up with a plan to take over the responsibilities of feeding, clothing, housing, protecting, treating and educating hundreds of millions of the, the church helps every day, I want to know what that has to do with the Pope's anti-capitalistic statements, which were quoted explicitly in which we were addressing. Robert and I, we do have a plan, freedom and capitalism. The Pope is against our plan, and prefers economic systems that cause poverty. And what's your responsibility with regarding to helping the poor? Praying for them? If you pray for them the way you pray for us, then perhaps it's because you really hate the poor that you're so blindly defending the Pope's comments on capitalism, not on anything the Church does by way of charity, by the way. By the way, the Church does not have a monopoly on charity, and nor does anyone else. And then, to ridiculously suggest that we, would, that we ourselves would suggest the Church would sell its assets and redistribute the wealth, uh, you know that tells me that if you do really listen normally to this show, you, don't, you haven't been getting our message. Your comments and criticisms don't even match anything that was said on the show, especially in the first ten minutes. Could you match any of these comments to anything you said, Robert? No. No.
4: Well, except for one. I think that there was an offhanded remark um, about the poor doing what is necessary to become rich. Oh. Of course, that only applies if you're in a, in a country that uh, will not uh, step on your head if you try to uh, apply yourself, right. uh, you know, like, like Canada, the United States, the Western world, not um, perhaps Argentina, I don't know much about that country, but uh, certainly not in a dictatorship, but other than that, no, I, don't, I think maybe he should have listened a little more. Well, I think so. To, uh, to find out exactly what we had to say about Pope Francis. Not only
3: that, he tuned out just as the uh, Michael Korn clip started, where Michael Corn was reiterating his points of view. Mm-hmm. He could have heard someone suggesting his side of the, po- of, the, of the coin. But in any case, his comments and criticisms don't even match anything we said on the show, especially in the first ten minutes. I re-listened, and there was nothing about Ayn Rand, objectivism, or even Christianity as such. So, you know, so you say you're a capitalist, and you've quote, lived that life. Well, first, Don't give me that crap. It qualifies you for nothing, least of all to mouth off and just justify a position. But you know, merely asserting this false kind of authority. You know, Ayn Rand wrote about people like you.
4: (laughs) (laughs) By the way, he's actually incorrect to think that we're not uh, capitalists. You started your own newspaper. I've had my own businesses as well. We're both capitalists. We've both
3: we've both we've both suffered. We've both had our losses. We've both been there, done that. We've had deaths in the family. My goodness, what is this person thinking? Mm Uh, To what life are you possibly referring? And then to blindly criticize Ayn Ayn Rand out of the blue in an ad hominem filibuster that only reveals how little you know about Ayn Rand's personal life. You know, as a Russian immigrant to the U.S., she saw things on a scale that you cannot possibly imagine. Her novel, We the Living, is the closest representation of her own experience. And it ain't a happy story, let me tell you. And when you say, quote, it should not in any way be a surprise Rand herself ended up a lonely welfare recipient in her last years, well, it sure does come as a surprise, because it's a total lie. <laughs> <laughs> welfare? <laughs> it's, t- it's totally untrue. Max, think about it for a minute. Think about it. This is, a- this is Ayn Rand. She wrote Atlas Shrugged, the number two book to the Bible. Okay? It still sells near a million copies a year to this day. Do you really think that a person whose books to this very day collectively continue to sell millions of copies would pass away as a lonely welfare recipient? <laughs> you know, Perhaps you've been reading one of the many, many outright lies printed in books like Ayn Rand Nation by Gary Weiss, which I only began reviewing on two previous broadcasts of Just Right. Sounds like it's time to continue that series. But just to set your mind at ease about Ayn Rand's final years, In a tweet to our attention back on July 21st of this year, Yaron Brook, who appeared as a guest on this show during this year, he wrote, quote, I've heard many lies that Ayn Rand was broke and relying on Social Security and Medicare. When Ayn Rand died, she was doing very well financially from the royalties on her books that were selling and still are very well, end quote. So there you go. Absolutely no truth to the big surprise I should have. Now, if you are a capitalist... I want to know why you aren't screaming at the top of your lungs against what Pope Francis was saying in his diatribe against capitalism. I mean, that's against you, isn't it? I don't get it. That's a glaring inconsistency. You never once said that capitalism's bad, or that something's wrong with capitalism, but that was the subject of the discussion in which the Pope
4: picked the wrong side, as far as we're concerned. Well, I think he has a fundamental uh, misunderstanding of what capitalism is, especially if he comes and says that capitalism only works in Western society. I'm sorry? Capitalism works. No matter where it is, as an economic system, as a political system, you'll only find it in history in in the West, in the United States. That's right. It's even deeper than that, you know. But in any case, you know, I don't think
3: he's really expressed any interest in capitalism as such. Although he went out of his way to say he's a capitalist. Um, Which... If you were going to be strict about it, it would mean he's living off of capital, he's a, he sells rental accommodation, banking, money, investments, that's a capital. That's the economic definition right. of capitalism, sure. And they exist in all countries, even in communist ones. But what seems to be clear is this writer is not dealing with abstractions. Uh, abstractions like capitalism, socialism, communism, economics, money itself... As a consequence, it's obvious he's forced to deal with personalities and people and blind faith. He has to attack a dead person, Ayn Rand, rather than deal with the concept of capitalism and what it means. And on the other side of the faith coin, Max apparently regards the Pope as being infallible on issues of economics, poverty, and capitalism, which is not even his, his purview. Ayn Rand did not invent capitalism. She defined it so that people could understand it. That's all. To say that You know, again, this is what you just said, Robert, that capitalism only works in Western society, makes it abundantly clear that concepts are outside the range of thought of this writer. Freedom and capitalism are the defining distinctions of what Western society means, right? That's it. Uh, The Eastern societies, when they turn capitalist, I think we'll be calling them Western societies, too. Capitalism works anywhere it exists, and of course it doesn't work in socialist, communist, fascist countries where it doesn't exist. Capitalism is the only wealth creation process that exists. Life, liberty, property, there are no others. All the others are wealth distribution processes. It is undeniable and demonstrable that the degree of a country's freedom corresponds to the degree of its wealth and its lack of poverty. The creation of wealth is a process, not a static fix-some, fix-pie game as it is in non-capitalist nations. And more, by saying, as Robert just pointed out, capitalism only works in Western society is also to abandon any effort towards a solution to the poverty in non-Western societies. It's a cop-out. Prayer won't do it. Capitalism will. Now, you know... I understand you want to pray for us, but I think it's another one of those Christian insults like all the good Christians who've come forward to pray for Rob Ford while calling on his removal uh, from office. And if you've actually been listening to our recent broadcast where we've been discussing this crocodile altruism and aggressiveness and hostility expressed through prayer, then I can only conclude your letter was intended as an ad hominem insult and a little more. Now, fortunately, neither Robert nor I consider... Your version of Christianity, if that's what it is, or is it Catholicism, to be representative of the kind of Christians and Catholics we generally know? Even Michael Corn and Anthony Fury, as we broadcast their debate last week, maybe you didn't stay stay on <laughs> tuned in long enough to hear it. They parted on friendly terms at the end of their debate. Remember, Robert? He said, uh, Michael said, We know where you live, and the Inquisition will be knocking on your door in about an hour and a half. Said it very politely, though. And Fury replied, And the atheist work camps are ready for you, my friend. And when they both (laughs) chuckled, it was a good good fun. So see how nice people can be if they want to be? (laughs) Well, we'll be talking about Rob Ford, Ryan's Law, and the Post Office when we return after this poll about the Pope
1: leader of the Catholic Church, Pope Francis, Time Magazine has named him its person of the year. Time calls Francis a superstar who
4: is poised to transform a place that measures change by the century. The Pope became Pope last March and his approval ratings are soaring in the wake of statements he made about growing income inequality. Well, a new Bloomberg National Poll finds that two-thirds of the Americans surveyed had a favorable view of the Pope. Only 13 percent had an unfavorable view. And by comparison, 55% of Americans disapprove of President Barack Obama and the job that he is doing.
5: You've had a difficult time, as uh, virtually all the world knows, having just returned from Australia and Britain. I can tell you, you were the most famous Canadian in the world. Move well would on. you? Uh, I know you wouldn't think of it in these terms. I mean, if, if you were a reasonably heavy drinker, stopped. Uh, uh, is it the case, assuming you stick with this, right. that you would expect to have that recognized by the voters? Because it, it is a, it is a, a, a purposeful demonstration of willpower. It's
6: just not the drinking. I, I think they'll give me almost um, more will if I lose the weight. If they saw someone who's like 60 pounds or 70 pounds lighter, mm. I know for sure when I look at somebody, and this is all my private life. Don't forget, I've never once, once been inebriated here at, at, at council. Mm-hmm. No one's I've been that straight, at, straight, at, straight as an arrow. I've never missed a day of work at 13 years. I get down 60, 70 pounds. It impresses me. When I meet people that used to be heavy and have lost weight, my first thing is, wow, that that's, that's takes us that takes a strong man to do that our unemployment's down uh, we've built the subways we've contracted out garbage we have no union
5: disputes anymore we haven't had one strike things are going great speaking of the police uh, what is your view of the chiefs uh, reflections on your performance in office I mean is that acceptable well, I, from the guy who actually works for you I am um I I support our
6: frontline officers a hundred percent. That was not my question. No, I know. I, the police, yeah. Uh, the chief, I have uh, an issue with. I, I think it's yeah. political. I'd like to know how much money he spent. Well, surveilling well he, me.
5: he he requested the twenty-one million. You didn't give him. Isn't that right? I don't uh, mean he pre- no, no, yeah, department. No, no, yeah. He wasn't
6: happy when I told yeah. people to find efficiencies. Yeah. I meant everybody. This yeah. is taxpayers' money. Everyone has to find ten percent, right off the board. And uh, I think he was quite upset at that. Yeah, I definitely think this is political. I think um, that they used the. Uh, you know at least he has a prop to get to me and
5: um, that's pretty well it and you are in effect saying to the 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 crown law office and the uh, and, and the police you know put up or shut up you gotta charge lay the charge absolutely i want yeah. to and if they want me to do a drug test
6: a urine test i'll do one right now if there's any drugs in my system any alcohol in my system i have no problem doing that
5: test and if they Rob, there's absolutely no need to do a urine test right now <laughs> please
4: don't no
5: don't (laughs) (laughs) now the reason we chose
4: to play this clip today uh, another Rob Ford clip is because we've been following that was Conrad Black interviewing him by the way yes on Vision TV Mm -hmm. Uh, Conrad has his own uh, show there apparently um now, the reason we have chose this is because we've been uh, following this saga of Rob Ford and, and the media's hounding of him and not looking at necessarily Rob Ford's own personal behavior and, and judging it so much as looking at the how the media, the press, the politicians handle this situation and vilify uh, a conservative where they would not normally vilify uh, a liberal. And we play this because it's continuing on, as he as he's accusing Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair of being political in his investigation of Ford in retaliation for Ford's insistence that all departments in the city, including the police department, trim their budgets by 10%. So, Blair said he leaves politics to the politicians and that he, uh, this is not a political vendetta. Uh, he qu- quote, we do our job, our job is to conduct criminal investigations to gather evidence and to place that evidence... Appropriately before the courts, he said, Uh, quote, that's exactly what we've done in this case, and we'll continue to do that, and we'll do that without fear and without favor. So, I just have this to say, either of these gentlemen could be right. They're just accusations on both parts. The saga continues. Stay tuned. (laughs) Now, there's another item that I wanted to take uh, onto the the show today, and that is uh, uh, almost every day. I have more stories to add to my public education horror file. And do if any reader of Ayn Rand remembers in the, I think it was the object of his newsletter, she would have a horror file. Uh, an example of something that is just absolutely horrible out there and, and the philosophy behind it and daily, there's educational items that fit this bill. Most recently, we have the case here in the London area of 12 year old Ryan Gibbons, who died October of last year when he suffered a severe asthma attack during recess at his school in Stratfordville, Ontario. And that's somewhere between Aylmer and Tilsonburg, just a little southwest of Tilsonburg. Uh, the school falls under the jurisdiction of the Thames Valley District School Board, a board that I was a trustee of for six years. And what is particularly troubling of this story is that Ryan was apparently forbidden to carry his inhaler with him at all times, as were the wishes of his mother. There's the point. Instead of giving life, uh, his life-giving inhaler, um, the school confiscated it and locked it away in the principal's office. Where Ryan s- When Ryan suffered his attack, he tried to make it to the office to retrieve his medication, but he didn't make it. Had he had his inhaler on him, there'd be no doubt that Ryan would be alive today, but for that school's policy. Ryan's mother is pushing the Ontario Parliament to pass a law preventing schools from prohibiting such medication as inhalers and EpiPens from being confiscated by their principals. And this apparently, yet another case of educators refusing to abide by the wishes of the parent the very thing you brought up, the last show? Was it the last show? I talked yeah. about it. Well, or Lucas- last time, last time yeah. you talked about this. I Lucas mean, Parentis, which is the, very, uh, yeah. the concept that um, a, a teacher, a principal, a babysitter, acts instead of the parent. They take the authority of the parent. But when the parent's wishes are known, they have absolutely no right to take that wish and throw it out the window uh, the result, in this case, being the death of that child. Uh, now, there are, of course, there are some wishes of the parent that uh, might fly in the face of the the good running of a particular school, like uh, you know, <laughs> you know, if it's the wishes parents that the s- child go to school naked, I mean, no. Well, I mean, obvious Something things or like things that. That, that were obviously harmful to life,
3: liberty, property, or the life exactly. of the child.
4: Yes. But this is the reverse. It is the exact reverse. Yes, It
3: is an abomination of
4: that principle. Cri- criminal,
3: of criminal, I think. I can't... Yeah. I, uh, when I heard that, I said, well, that's that's a criminal charge right there, and I don't. This whole talk of Ryan's law sounds like, well, if we pass a law, we can avoid the criminal charge or something. I don't know. That's almost what it sounds
4: like. What do you need a law for, to deal with something so obvious? Well, I'll get into this a little later okay. because it's because principals, teachers, bureaucrats, that whole system of public education, they act like automatons. They're just robots, following rules. Robots. robots. Yeah. S- synthetics. Hmm. Oh no! Now, isn't that if, interesting? If this, then that because it's written in policy, written in, uh, in, in, in their own little pamphlets. I like that. Synthetic teachers. <laughs> so it's, it's a parents, bad word, though. Parents have to realize that they have choices when it comes to educating their child. They don't have to send them to public school. I know we all pay for it. They pay for it with their taxes, but sometimes people have to make a choice. Not a sacrifice, but a choice. Okay? Your, your money's being taken from you, regardless. Who, who cares if it goes to public education, Catholic education, or if they go and, and, and give Samsung a billion dollars to change their gas plant somewhere? Doesn't matter. You have to do what's responsible and, and, and proper for your child, and if that means not putting him in a public school, which I would recommend, uh, then fine. Educate him at home. Send them to a private school. Don't educate them. They'd be far better off than sending them to public school. I've said this before. Another one for the horror file. Colorado student suspended for kissing a girl. Oh, I heard about that. A Mm. six-year-old. A six-year-old Don Juan, as this particular (laughs) reporter, uh, not me, but uh, where I got this from, um, KRDO in Colorado, uh, has been suspended from school in Colorado for kissing a classmate on the cheek because his principal considered it sexual harassment. Hunter Yelton of Canyon City gave his girlfriend a peck on the cheek at school, leading to his suspension from school on Monday, KRDO in Colorado reported. Quote, it was during class. Yeah, we were doing reading group and I leaned over and I kissed her, Hunter said (laughs) to the news station. They sent me to the office fair and square. I did something wrong and I feel sorry. Of course, he's a child, you know. (laughs) Bob Hunter's mom, Jennifer Saunders, said the school's decision to suspend Hunter for a day was an outrageous overreaction and that her son and the girl are boyfriend and girlfriend. Anyway, this is an example of teachers not having the common sense to realize that sexual harassment policies set up for adults and students who are reaching sexual maturity do not apply to prepubescent children who innocently give another student a peck on the cheek. Come on, people! You know, it might have been inappropriate class behavior, but sexual harassment, yes. come on, that's, that's Which, the distinction. that by that's the way, distinction. stays on his permanent school record. This boy what? will grow up now with this stain on no his record way. saying that he's he's been guilty of sexual harassment in the school. Oh, my Lord. Exactly. Such adherence to a poorly written policy might be expected of an automaton or a synthetic (laughs) or a robot, but not a mature adult. Unfortunately, maturity seems to be lacking in the educators of Canyon City, Colorado. Let's move on to Canada Post's recent decision to (laughs) eliminate door-to-door service in urban centres in Canada. Uh, The the reason I bring this up, because it is an ongoing story as well, like the Rob Ford story, Um, we talked about Canada Post's monopoly on a previous show, where I quoted from the exact act, the Canada Post Corporation Act, which gives them the exclusive power to be the only organization to be able to go to your front doorstep and put mail in your mailbox. By law, nobody else is allowed to do it. There are some exceptions, they are rare, but some exceptions. Um, Like a friend can actually go to your door and put a letter in your in your mailbox, as long as he doesn't charge any money or anything like that. That's still permitted. But other than that, it's against the law for anybody else it's to like do that. It's like the
3: prostitution laws. You can have sex, but you can't trade money. It's true. Yep. It's, it's soliciting, soliciting so, it's for prostitution. It's, always, it's like that all yeah. throughout all trade barriers.
4: The uh, the particular uh, section in the Act is uh, Section 40, Subsection 1. Subject to this Act and the regulations, Her Majesty... Uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong one this act uh, this particular section 41 by 40.1 by the way is very interesting too because it addresses what i think are some of the objections that people have to privatizing this this thing some of the objections would be that how can we trust a private organization with our goods or our letters and the real question is, how can you trust the Canada Post? That's my question. (laughs) Because (laughs) section 40.1 says, subject to this act and the regulations, Her Majesty, the Minister, and the Corporation are not liable to any person for any claim arising from the loss, delay, or mishandling of anything posted. So, you pay your dollar now for a postage stamp, and that's it. If they lose it, if they mutilate it, if they spindle it, or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. You've lost your buck and you're just praying that they'll send you that letter to its address, um, the, the address recipient. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine if a private company like FedEx or a UPS or um, a Helix Courier here in London had in their contract with you, we will take your money, but we guarantee you nothing. We're not liable if we don't deliver it. We're not liable if we lose it. We're not liable if we destroy it. The point about this is this is a great opportunity for the Conservative government in Parliament today and the Parliament of Canada to say that now that Canada Post is no longer delivering to your mailbox, what a perfect opportunity to get rid of the clause in the Canada Post Corporation Act that prohibits other people from doing so. Great opportunity. I'd love to see uh, Stephen Harper jump on it. He'd get my support just for that one. See it happening? (laughs) <laughs> no. <laughs> no, me neither. Why actually, is that? No, actually, I wonder, because in uh, uh, coming into the studio today, all the radio stations were talking about a lot of people calling in saying, we need to privatize, we need allow, uh, to allow uh, the private sector to get into first-class mail delivery without having to pay three times the rate, which is part of the law. And so, yeah, there's a little hope out there. They might do it. Well, I think it'd be great if they did Got my fingers crossed. Yeah. Anyway, we're at the bottom of the hour. We've got a couple more clips coming up from Almost Human. And when we return, we're going to take on that new show, which I find exciting. We'll be back right after this.
1: So what do I call you? Detective. Well, Detective, this sure beats repairing thermal insulation tiles on the CNA space station. I was decommissioned four years ago, as you know. Why am I in this car with you? I'm required to ride with a synthetic. I'm not a huge fan of that term. St. Christopher! This has to be a gift from someone, am I right? Something like 80% of these are given as gifts. Synthetics are precise. There's that term again. You just said something like 80%. The actual statistic is 83.42%, but I'm running my colloquialism routine, so I express most data conversationally, man. Terrific. So who is A? Addison? Annie? Adeline? Alana? Anita? Amy? Audrey? Aquamarine? Okay, that's enough. All right? Um, Synthetic off. Synthetic off. Does that mean you want me to be quiet? Yeah, whatever the mode is for you to be quiet, just do that. Hey, man. I can be quiet. You can just... Ask. What exactly are we hoping to find up here? That wire Cooper was wearing was transmitting this somewhere. Uh, maybe he was doing more up here than just fixing this cabin. You seem entirely convinced that Cooper was somehow unfairly set up by these traffickers. Cooper was my friend, and until someone can prove any different, he deserves my allegiance.
2: Man, if I lived in the cabin, I'd kill
1: myself. You should buy a cabin, John.
3: Yeah, cute. You want to walk home?
1: Great work. Thanks. You should celebrate. We will. You have a date. What? <laughs> no, I don't. Yes, you do. With the woman from the dating website. <laughs> what? No. He has a wonderful profile. She's expecting you at seven. <laughs> That's a... It's just a... It's a joke, you know. And I got a lot of women. I mean, not a lot. You know, just a... You should celebrate no matter what.
0: Have a great night. On your date.
1: Thanks. Good night. Benedict right. Android strikes again.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I really like this show. Um, you're listening to Just Right on CHW ninety four point nine FM, where you can find all of our shows on our website at uh, justrightmedia.org dot org, and now you can find all of them on iTunes. Just go to our website and click on the uh, download on iTunes, and you'll find all three hundred and twenty eight as of today episodes on iTunes. And before we get into uh, talking about uh, one of the most promising shows I see on TV, we have caller Scott on the line to talk about Canada Post. Hi,
0: Scott. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Okay. Um, yeah, I sent Bob uh, Metz an email a couple of days ago just praising him for uh, him calling into Andy Udman's show um, about uh, Canada Post and a little bit about Kellogg's and, The thing with Canada Post is, I actually think that phasing out uh, door-to-door is is a good thing, just solely on the fact that the door-to-door delivery people now can't deliver the mail correctly anyway. (laughs) I I used to live in an apartment uh, that was divided up into a couple of apartments, and they could never deliver my mail right. I moved to a new place a month ago. They still cannot deliver my mail right In, in a different postal code and the, the, the thing about uh, Canada Post and a little bit about Kellogg's is I, I don't understand how people aren't noticing that demand is going down, price to do stuff is going up, so difficult and unpopular decisions have to be made when business is concerned. And I'll leave you with this, um, it, it's kind. Of, I think about it this way, if you pay a kid to shovel your driveway and then come summer He still wants you to pay you for shoveling your driveway, but he won't let you pay him less. He doesn't recognize that there's no demand for snow removal, and he won't learn to cut the grass. Do you really expect to pay him what he's asking for? And that's how I think about the unions with Canada Post and Kellogg's, because they want to get theirs, but if there's no more money to pay them, then they don't understand. So I just wanted to get a comment on
4: that. Some good points, Scott. Uh, thanks very much for the call. Um, just so, uh, you, you know, I live that
3: myself. I get the wrong mail on my address every day of the week. Is that right? Because my apartment unit happens to be the same as the building unit. That's true. And you get everybody's mail. I don't know who's getting mine, but I also get mail for other un- other units around that are similar. That I, I don't know
4: who's reading it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard to tell. Uh, an interesting fact I found out about the Canada Post um, was about those uh, the community mailboxes that you see in the new neighborhoods now. Do, yeah. you, rea- do you know who pays for that? Who? The developer, two hundred dollars per address to put up those mailboxes. Canada Post charges the developer that. So there's an average of forty-eight uh, addresses per uh, community mailbox. That's almost what uh, ten thousand dollars.
3: And what if the community was developed before the mailboxes go in? Who pays then?
4: Uh, That I don't know. Uh But in new developments, a developer is charged to put up those mailboxes. I thought it was Canada Post charged that. So, I mean, hmm, interesting little Mm -hmm. factoid there. Anyway, about Almost Human. Yes, I'm watching it myself. Yeah, one of the best shows to hit the airwaves in a while, uh, in my opinion. It stars Carl Urban, who plays Detective John Kennex. um, And he's most recently recognizable as Dr. McCoy from the new Star Trek movies, Mm -hmm. Bones. Um, Great actor, in my opinion. Uh, I also uh, remember him from... Um, he played Aomir on uh, Lord of the Rings. I know you're not a fan. Uh, also, Michael Ely is, uh, is uh, Dorian, uh, the uh, synthetic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't recognize him at first, but Mackenzie Crook, uh, who's who's Gareth from The Office, now I'm talking about uh, the British Office, um, oh. plays Rudy, the um, the geek, the techie. Okay. yes, yes. Yeah, and now he's... I, uh, now I recognize him, yeah. Yeah, um... It's set in the year 2048 where cops are partnered with robots and the criminals are exploiting a wide array of new technologies. And with any show, the setting and the theme are just backdrops to the most interesting part of, the st- of the, any story, which, of course, is the plot and the characters. The plot uh, revolves around the use of new technologies and can be quite original. But the gripping part of this new show, for me is the relationship between detective Kennex and his synthetic partner Dorian uh, while the storylines are serious you know and it's a pretty gritty uh, mm. show I and mean, a lot of blood a lot of gore a lot of shooting a lot of explosions what you'd expect from a cop show yeah. kind of thing. cops um, and robbers yeah it's uh, you know you, you're going to get more that sophisticated. in sophisticated. <laughs> yeah a little yeah. bit um, this, so you got serious plot lines. The interactions between Kennex and Dorian, uh, I think, are quite humorous. The jokes don't get in the way, though, no. of the plot, and only serve to make the characters, well, more human. That's interesting, you know. <laughs> uh,
3: it's the chemistry that makes it human. Otherwise, chemistry. it would be called almost robot.
4: You know, Star <laughs> Trek itself, speaking of Carol Urban, uh, Star Trek, I mean, if you go back to the original series, that series would have been nothing if it wasn't for the chemistry of the actors and the characters and the interplay between them the little jibs and jabs that mccoy gave spock for example while while kirk would sit in his captain's chair and chuckle to himself over their rivalry those kinds of things made the show i think star
3: did. trek in that sense may have been one of the first to take away from the special effects and the and the glitz of the new of of all that new new thinking you know going into space now let's put that behind us let's make that the background
4: get back to human stories, right? Mm -hmm. And it changed the whole nature of science fiction. That's right. I mean, another show for... You look at any good show, um, another one I like is Castle. It's the interplay between all the characters, the sexual tensions, the jokes, all of that kind of stuff that makes it watchable.
3: It also has very good stories, too, though. Excellent
4: scripts, and it seems to be getting better over time. Plot and characterization are the two essential things of any good TV show or story. And, and in this particular one, Almost Human, there's a feeling of what today could be called even a, a racial or cultural tension between the human detective and his synthetic sidekick, as both characters learn more about themselves by interacting with each other. Kennex needs Dorian to lighten what would otherwise be a brooding, surly personality, while Dorian needs Kennex to learn more about life and even his own mortality. It's odd how um, the robots from early science fiction have progressed from Asimov's Three Rules for Robots to movies like The Terminator and shows like Star Trek The Next Generation where the android character Data reminds me of Dorian, a robot coming to grips with his nature in a world of humans. This show has a lot of potential, certainly a lot of potential for clips, as a clip source for this show, because they talk about things like life and death, philosophy, morality, ethics, and things like that, Mm. so I am very excited, and I just, it is so good I'll probably cancel it. Well, we're not even (laughs) sure if it's not canceled yet.
3: They haven't yet uh, aired their sixth episode. It just um, debuted last month in November. Yes. So they're only at episode five now. It's been a lot of fun. Kind of reminds me, you know, I don't know what it is, but um, the idea of a human-robot team has been popular for longer than you think, you know. You can think about, of course, all the Star Trek data, of course, right? Remember Get Smart, Jaime the Robot? Yes, I do. (laughs) He was a lot of fun. (laughs) I know you haven't seen it. We just talked about it, and it's the biggest money loser of all time. Pluto Nash. Yeah, yeah. the
4: Adventures of Pluto Nash with with Eddie Murphy. I watched a bit of it last night, and um, it I don't know. <laughs> well, you have to watch. It's, it's a comedy, let's face it. But the
3: robot sidekick is a laugh. And of yeah. course, we all know R2D2 and C3PO. And Buck Rogers had Tweaky and Dr. Aye. Theopolis. And Red Dwarf's Crichton. Remember yes, him? Yes, I do, yeah. And uh, to say nothing of Rimmer, the, the hologram. He was <laughs> not a robot, I guess. I guess that's a little different. But of course, there's uh, Robbie, Danger Will Robinson. Lost in Space, yeah. and the other Robbie the Robot from Forbidden Planet with Anne Francis. Yes,
4: and, and Leslie Nielsen.
3: Yes, and then the show that I thought was closest to this, but not in tone, but in 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 the concept, was Total Recall twenty seventy, mm-hmm. and um, that was a one season I think TV series, it might have been two, I'm not sure, but it had the same kind of idea and the same kind of tensions. Cop, uh, two cops, one's an android, one's a cop, and they have. Uh, there's a culture developing. In fact, that's the big climax of the show, is the realization of a lot of these androids into sentience. And that's the drama of it, right? As the humans start realizing, hey, they're not just robots
4: anymore. So I it makes for interesting yeah. interesting viewing. I can see with this show taking off in a number of di- different directions, if they let it, for example, the uh, the newer model, MX Robots, are very much automatons, much yes. like today's school teachers. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, to prevent them from having any emotional. They are uh, by the book yeah. all the way. So much so that in the pilot episode, uh, Kennex just kicks his out out this corridor into into the oncoming traffic. I and couldn't destroys believe
3: him. that. <laughs> I said, "Okay, I'm
4: watching this show after they did that." I said, "Okay, that's not supposed to happen." But can you imagine <laughs> that maybe a future uh, plot would be that these MX uh, version robots become? Um, a little more powerful, you know? And yeah, they
3: could go anywhere with this. I haven't heard any word on whether this series is going to make it, whether we've just watched a handful of pilots and blew it again, yeah, you know? another Firefly. But th- that's still, they're standalone stories. They're fun to watch as they are. Anyway, when we return on the other side of the bumper, it's the synthetic language of polytalk, the language of politics and labeling. But first, we know the friendship in Almost Human is Almost Human. And when you start hearing conversations like this one, we'll be back right after this.
1: You're, uh, you know, you're not like that down there, are you? Not that it's any of your business. But my designer was much more thoughtful. I'm made to look human. Okay, good. good. I can show you. No, no, what are you doing? No, no, no. Oh, my God. Is that all for one person? Dude, put it away. Wait. You're a robot, what what do you do with it? Probably the same thing you do with yours. Nothing.
7: talk today about a controversial word. It's a word that has been with us for years. And like it or not, it's indelibly printed in the pages of American history. A word that was originally intended as a derogatory term, meant to shame and divide and demean. The word was conceived of by a, a group of wealthy white men who needed a way to put themselves above and apart from a black man to render him inferior and unequal and to diminish his accomplishments. President Obama has been labeled with this word by his opponents, and at first he rose above it, hoping that if he could just make a cause for what he'd achieved, his opponents would fail in making their label stick. But no matter how many successes that he had as president, he realized there were still many people for whom he'd never be anything more than that one disparaging word. A belief he knew was held not just by his political opponents, but also by a significant portion of the American electorate. And so he decided, if you can't beat him, you got to join him. And he embraced the word and made it his own, sending his opposition a message they weren't expecting. If that's what you want me to be, I'll be that. Y'all know the word that I'm talking about. Obamacare. That's right. I said it and I'm not ashamed and neither is President Obama because he knows that of all his victories over two terms in office, his legacy is ultimately going to be remembered for this one single word. I mean, what do you call the president who rescues the U.S. auto industry? Obamacare. What do you call the president who finally eliminates Osama bin Laden? Obamacare. What do you call the president who ends Don't Ask, Don't Tell? Say it with me. Obamacare. Heard the one about the president who pulled us out of the greatest recession since the Great Depression? Yep, Obamacare. And and what about the one, you know, about the president who reduced drug sentencing disparities? Obamacare, stop if you have heard this one. A group of underpaid women and the president who passed a pay equity law walk into a bar. Okay, you see where I'm going with this. Short of bringing about world peace before he leaves office, the Affordable Care Act will loom large in the president's legacy. as the singular accomplishment of his two terms. And now, following the relaunch of a new and improved and fully operational healthcare.gov website, the president is not only owning it, but doubling down and putting a bright spotlight on the Obama in Obamacare.
3: Now that's brilliant, isn't it? Using Obamacare as a label for Obama himself. <laughs> it's brilliant, you know. Obama cares. Nobody else cares. Everyone else is a racist. That's basically the message she just gave, and so it is that Who opinions. Was that? that was actually MSNBC's Melissa Harris. Oh, Melissa Harris Perry. That's her name, and speaking on Obamacare, of course. And uh, you know, so it is that opinions such as that one are part of a propaganda campaign against anyone who's opposed to state-funded health care. That's how you do it. And uh, just as Dorian in Almost Human doesn't like the word synthetic, that's an offense to him. So you have these labels. And what I thought I'd start today, and this might just be part one of, a, of an ongoing series here and there, is political definitions, which I borrowed from this particular book here initially from William Sapphire's Political Dictionary, The New Language of Politics, uh, originally published in um, this, this copy was actually 1980 and originally copyright 68 and updated constantly. But some of the expressions are still in use. There's a whole history of how political expressions come into use and what they are needs to be said. And he writes in his introduction, this is a dictionary of the words and phrases that have misled millions, blackened reputations, held out false hopes, oversimplified ideas to appeal to the lowest common denominator, shouted down inquiry, and replaced searching debate with stereotypes that trigger approval or hatred. Isn't that exactly what that last labeled? was just calculated to do right indeed this is also a dictionary that shows how the choice of a word or metaphor can reveal sensitivity and genius crystallize a mood and turn it into action some political language captures the essence of an abstraction and makes it understandable to millions the language of politics is vivid gut fighters with an instinct for the jugular and hatchet men adept at nut cutting prowl the political jungle an anonymous voice becomes a voice from the sewer a bigot an apostle of hate a pessimist a prophet of gloom and doom a censor a book burner men who enter the political arena with foot and mouth disease leave in a hail of dead cats (laughs) you heard all those phrases The political zoo offers most metaphors of all. Doves and hawks fly in its aviary, along with the emblematic bald eagles, as lame ducks eat crow on the rubber chicken circuit and all look warily at the flu-flu bird lowest in the pecking order. (laughs) (laughs) The menagerie features the familiar elephant and donkey, with a big cage for tigers, Tammany and paper, who enjoy twisting the lion's tail. The Mossback ignores the racket of the watchdog committees and the bird dogs and kennel dogs yapping at the fat cats, who in turn hunger for a red herring and long to hear shrimp's whistle. (laughs) In the Candidate stable, the dark horse, the wheel horse, the stalking horse are itched in a troika as the old war horse awaits the man on horseback. (laughs) Isn't that funny? That's clever. (laughs) Then he says, not in this dictionary. As defined here, the language of politics does not include much of the language of government. If a word has a good definition available in most dictionaries, this is not the place to look for it, he says. Now, what I thought was interesting, there's serious and not serious definitions in here. Of course, they're all from historical record. And one of them was actually the word ideas itself. Did you know that? No. Ideas. The word ideas, a catchword for a number of political movements that enjoyed some fame in the U.S. Most of the references are American, though there are some British, but not too many Canadian. And he writes, one idea parties was a 19th century label placed first on anti-Masons and then on all minority or splinter parties by members of larger parties. However, some of the ideas were worth looking into. And guess what number one is? The idea of freedom. Associated with the abolitionist cause, the phrase was introduced by Theodore Parker at a New England anti-slavery convention held in Boston, May 29, 1850. Parker's idea was of a democracy that is a government of all the people, by all the people, for all the people. Of course, a government after the principle of eternal justice, the unchanging law of God. For shortness' sake, I will call it the idea of freedom, quote. Part of this statement was later adopted by Lincoln at Gettysburg. Interesting, eh? Mm. This is interesting. Ideology. Originally, a system of ideas for political or social action. In current political use, a mental straitjacket, <laughs> right? or rigid rules for the philosophically narrow-minded. I think ideology is a scare word to most Americans, observed former California Governor Ronald Reagan to columnists Evans and Novak in 1978. But a basic political philosophy is the reason for a party existing. See, I always knew I liked that guy for some reason. In this big tent versus stand-for-nothing argument, or stand-for-something argument, which bothers Republicans more than Democrats, the meeting ground is philosophy. Philosophy or basic philosophy. The safest phraseology for both sides is an assertion that, quote, certain principles and values cannot be compromised, provided they are not defined. <laughs> and that's true. Other parties say, Oh, talk, we won't we won't compromise our principles, but you never find out what their principles <laughs> really are, right? Yes. And then we have some fun stuff here. These are political proverbs and axioms. Break in anytime you want. These are one-liners. We could go through two a minute if we wanted to. And uh, I've picked out, oh, 31 of them, and we're not going to get through we'll any... six minutes left. Uh, well, we <laughs> so we'll get through maybe, maybe half of them, believe go. it or not. Uh, Thomas Jefferson. I love this one. Few die and none resign. <laughs> that was number five. Go fight City Hall. That's called the resigned version. You can't find, you can't fight city hall. That's the helpless version. <laughs> I noticed there, there's no optimistic version <laughs> on city hall.
0: Mm. Uh,
3: n- that was number one. No, the first one I did was number five. Number two, you can't beat somebody with nobody. Number three, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That was attributed to Pennsylvania politician Simon Cameron, Lincoln's first war secretary. Really? Yeah. Isn't that interesting? When the water reaches the upper deck. Follow the Rats, attributed to FDR's Secretary of the Navy. I thought it to be attributed ones. to Kim Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Root hog or die, the office seeks the man. That's uh, an old saying. Number seven in politics, a man must learn to rise above principle. <laughs> no attribution found for this, or its more recent version, we'll double-cross that bridge when we come to it. <laughs> Of course, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. That was a favorite of Harry Truman's. Um, Oh, I like this one. um, This is Woodrow Wilson. He must have been talking about Tim Hudak and the Ontario PCs, but he said, uh, never murder a man who is committing suicide. (laughs) (laughs) I can see that, Tim Hudak, yeah. Al Smith, nobody shoots at Santa Claus. Well, I don't know about that anymore. They've been doing that today, haven't they? Uh, I like this one. If you don't go to other people's funerals, they won't go to yours. <laughs> and he writes, put positively, this delightful proverb suggests that if you do go to other people's funerals, they will attend yours, as ghosts, presumably. No known, no known attribution, probably some anonymous ghostwriter. <laughs> I think he's having a little fun with us there. A little bit. Uh, I like this one, too. Who do you think said this? You can get a lot more done with a kind word and a gun. Then with a kind word,
4: alone. <laughs> uh, who do you think said that? That sounds like, speak softly and carry a big stick, um, which was... Uh... Nope. Oh. You, know, you know who said that? Who said that? Al
3: Capone. Al Capone said that. He was quoted jocularly by economist Walter oh. Heller in connection with wage and price controls. They wow. were talking about wage and price controls.
4: Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And what was the one you just said, you just said? Teddy uh, Roosevelt um, speaks softly and carry a big stick, I think.
3: Oh, man, I've got that one here somewhere, because there's something very interesting about it, too, and I'm trying to see. Well, here's one I like, (laughs) number 13. If you have an elephant on a string, and the elephant starts to run, better let him run. (laughs) Let let go of the string. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) If it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then it just may be a duck. That phrase came from labor leader Walter Reuther on his instructions on how you can tell a communist. Interesting. Isn't that an interesting twist? And, of course, uh, a rising tide lifts all the boats comes from John Kennedy. And I like this one, so I'll leave this one as the last one. Uh, Never hold discussions with the monkey when the organ grinder is in the room. (laughs) You know who said that to who? Who? Winston Churchill said that to the British ambassador of Rome as to whether he should raise a question with Mussolini or his foreign minister, Count Sieno. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it for us today as we leave for another week to continue our direction, our journey in the right direction. Synthetic off. <laughs> Synthetic off. Yeah, I think I've just about had it for one day. We'll see you next week, our last show of the year.
4: Fade into color,
2: color into black and white. How do you think Holly feels?
3: Feels? He doesn't feel anything, Lister. He's a computer.
2: He still feels. Sometimes I think it's cruel giving machines a personality. My mate Peterson once bought a pair of shoes with artificial intelligence. Smart shoes, they were called. It was a neat idea. No matter how blind drunk you were, they could always get you home. But he got ratted one night in Oslo and woke up the next morning and bare me. See, the shoes got bored just going from his local to the flat. He wanted to see the world, like, you know? (laughs) He had a hell of a job getting rid of them. No matter who he sold them to, they'd show up again the next day. He tried to shut them up, but they'd just kick the door down, you know? Is this true? Yeah. Last thing he heard, they'd sort of, um, robbed a car and drove it into a canal. (laughs) They couldn't steer, you see. (laughs) Really? Yeah, Peterson was really, really blown away about it. He went to see a priest. The priest told him, he said, he said it was all right and all that, like, and the shoes were happy and that they'd gone to heaven. You see, it turns out shoes have soles.
7: <laughs> oh, what
2: a sad, sad story. <laughs>